Well, it's a joy to open God's word with you this morning. And if you would turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Most people love holidays. After all, holidays often come with a lot of personal perks for us. Things like time off work, extra time with friends and family. Some of us have grand family traditions that we love that bring us much joy. And typically we associate holidays with happy times. But the truth is sometimes while we may understand why we celebrate a given holiday, we fail to really grasp its true significance. Take, for example, the holiday of Memorial Day. Now, I'm assuming if I went around and asked each of you why we celebrate Memorial Day in the United States, you'd be able to tell me it's because of those who have given their life in service to our country and to remember them, and you'd be right. But how much do we really appreciate the significance of a day like Memorial Day? I think it can be different for different people. Think of the civilian who's never been in the military, never had a family member in the military. They come to Memorial Day, they, they celebrate that day, they're thankful for the freedoms that we share, but that may be as far as the significance goes for them. But now think of a, a woman who's a widow who lost her husband in war. Think about how she celebrates the significance of Memorial Day. What about a retired Marine who fought along many of his best friends and they didn't make it home? How do they think about the significance of Memorial Day. Today, obviously, is a holiday. It's Easter, Resurrection Sunday. Many, if not most, Americans can explain to you the basics of why Easter is celebrated among Christians. Even many unbelievers enjoy joining in the festivities of the, the cultural celebration of Easter. But while most people can explain to you that we celebrate Easter because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Many miss the true significance of this fact. Let me ask it in a personal way. Do you truly grasp the significance of Easter? Because you see, many people believe the bare facts of the history of the person of Jesus Christ. They believe even the fact that he rose from the dead, and yet for them it's a cold historical fact. It's, it's like believing that George Washington was the first president of the United States or, or, or that Romeo and Juliet was written by William Shakespeare. But the truth is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most significant event in human history. In fact, the, the impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and this holiday should affect us far more than the grieving widow or the grieving soldier on Memorial Day. The fact is, whether you realize it or not, how you respond to the person of Jesus Christ and the, the significance of this day is the most important thing about you. So what I want us to do this morning, instead of looking at at the details of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so that's a very profitable thing to do, and we may do that in coming years. But instead of that this morning, I want us to consider the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why does it matter? What does it mean for us? And in order to do that, I want us to focus in on one conversation that Jesus had with a woman named Martha. And we're going to be like, like a fly on the wall listening to this conversation. And what we'll, we'll find is that Jesus reveals some important truths that go far beyond Martha and they stretch into today. 
into each one of our personal lives. Before we come to the actual verses that we're going to look at and spend our time on, let me give you some of the, the context just to catch us up to speed. Jesus has gotten himself in some hot water with some of the religious leaders because of the things he's said and done, because of the ways that he has confronted them, and most of all, because he has claimed to be God in human flesh. The Pharisees and Sadducees are looking for a way to put him to death. And so Jesus has retreated outside of town. He's down by the Jordan River where John the Baptist carried out his ministry. When suddenly visitors from another town just outside of Jerusalem, the town of Bethany, come to explain to him that a close family friend is sick and near death. Let's pick up there at John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Now we're actually gonna begin in verse 17 this morning for the, the section of scripture I want us to focus on, but let me point out a few things about what we just read. Notice in verse four, Jesus makes a startling statement. When he finds out that Lazarus is sick, he says this, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Jesus is telling the disciples that this sickness in Lazarus is for a purpose, that God is going to prove a point through what's happening in Lazarus's life, and that point is the glory of God the Father and gl the glory of Jesus the Son. But then something interesting happens. Notice in verse 5, it tells us how Jesus felt about these people. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But then verse 6 strangely says this, So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, that seems odd. If it says that Jesus has this love and affection for Lazarus, wouldn't you think that he would just spring into action and go immediately to Bethany to try to intervene on Lazarus's behalf, but he doesn't do that. He intentionally waits 
two full days before taking the day trip to Bethany to be where Lazarus is. That's because he wants the people to know for certain that Lazarus is really dead. By the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus is not only dead, but has been in the tomb for four days, which means he probably died on the day that the messenger got there with the message in the first place. And so Jesus waits really three full days if you count the travel day. Now four days Lazarus has been in the tomb. It's clear Lazarus has not fallen asleep. He's not just gravely ill. He's not just unconscious. He is dead. It also has given time for many visitors to come from Jerusalem to con console this grieving family. So there will be many witnesses on this day of what Jesus is about to do. Now, with that introduction in mind, let's look at the, the conversation that I want us to hone in on this morning, beginning back in verse 17, John eleven seventeen. So when Jesus came, he found that he'd already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Really, there's one simple message of this wonderful conversation, and it's this. All who trust in Jesus Christ have eternal life. All who trust in Jesus Christ have eternal life. We're going to dissect this conversation together this morning, and I want you to see five different features of this wonderful conversation as we bring out the deep meaning behind this text. The first feature is a grieving heart. A grieving heart. Look back at verse 20, it says, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Now, we have another account of Mary and Martha in the gospel accounts that helps us see that the way that the two women respond is very much in keeping with their personalities. In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, we have this famous story of these two sisters. It says, now as they were traveling along, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Now, this encounter with, with Jesus here and the one in John 11 show these two same ladies playing similar parts. Martha is not one to sit still. 
And even though it was the custom at that time for those who had lost a loved one to sit in their home and receive visitors who were coming to console them, as soon as she hears that Jesus is near, in fact, he's not even in the city yet, he's on the outskirts of the city, she gets up and goes to meet him while Mary stays behind, seated in the home to receive their visitors. Now we can imagine and sympathize with Martha here. Her heart is broken. She's lost her dear brother who was not only a close relative, but was likely the one that provided financially for her and her sister. And so the words that she says to Jesus are really striking because what we see are two things, her brokenness of heart on the one hand, but also her love and trust in Jesus. Look back at verse 21. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. First of all, notice that she refers to Jesus as Lord. This is a term of respect, of humble submission. It's, it's a, a term that you would use of someone that you recognize as an authority figure in your life. She calls him Lord, and in her grief, she's lamenting the fact that Jesus wasn't there. Obviously, she had seen Jesus heal other people. She knew the power that Jesus had, and she knew that if he had been there physically present, he could have intervened. He could have done something for her brother, Lazarus. But even in her grief, she's not lost her trust and her faith in Jesus. Because look back at verse 21 again, actually verse 22. He says, she says, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So we see her grieving heart. She's not chastising Jesus for not being there. She's not rebuking him. She's simply expressing her grief that she wishes he had been there. But then she admits that she still trusts in who Jesus is. Now, some have taken her words here to mean that she's asking Jesus even now to intervene on Lazarus's behalf and to raise him from the dead. But as we go through this conversation, we see that's actually not what she's saying. This is more just a general statement of her confidence in who Jesus is, that she's not wavered in her faith, that even though her circumstances have not turned out as she had hoped and no doubt prayed, she's not turned her back on Jesus. And Jesus' response is intentionally perplexing. This is a second feature in this conversation. Feature number two, a prophetic promise. In response to her statement of grief and faith, Jesus says this, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. Astonishingly, Jesus responds to her display of faith and grief with this prophetic promise. He says, your brother is going to rise again from the dead. Now, when we tie this in with verse 4 that we read earlier, where Jesus said this, this situation is for the glory of God and for the glory of himself, and now this promise that Lazarus will be raised from the dead, we're beginning to put together the pieces of what Jesus is doing and what he's, it's just a calculated act on his part. He waited to come to Bethany on purpose. It's clear Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. A crowd is gathered. But as often is the case, Jesus' words are, are vague here. He doesn't say exactly when he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus, Jesus will often make statements that are thought-provoking, that are intended to make a point. And unfortunately, Martha misses the point here. And we see that in her response. This is a third feature in this conversation, a partial knowledge. 
Listen to Martha's response. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, this is why I said earlier that Martha's statement was not asking Jesus to raise her brother from the dead, because if it had been, then certainly she would have taken Jesus' promise to raise him as as an, an affirmative answer to her request. But that's not what she says. Instead, she looks forward to a future resurrection and says, I know that he will be raised at the end. This was a common belief among conservative Jews at the time. They believed in a future resurrection, just as we do. And we see this in Daniel chapter 12. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Now at that time Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, there was a disagreement among the two major Jewish sects at this time. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the conservative group. The Sadducees were the more liberal group. And the Sadducees did not believe in a future resurrection. We see this when the apostle Paul takes advantage of this in Acts 23. He's been arrested falsely. And he brings up this issue to create a debate between the two sides. Acts 23, verse 6. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Now, I say all of that to say that Martha obviously was a conservative Jewish woman. She believed the Old Testament. She took it literally. She believed these promises would come true one day of a future resurrection. But what Jesus meant when he said that he would raise Lazarus from the dead is is not that he would participate in this future resurrection. He meant right now I'm about to raise him from the dead. But here's what's interesting. Instead of just simply clarifying his point, he could have just said, no, 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 Martha, you misunderstood. I don't mean then, I mean now. That's not what he does. Instead, he does something even more important. You might say, what could be more important than telling her that he's going to raise her brother from the dead? Jesus is going to explain the significance of the miracle before he performs it. And this is crucial for us to understand because the words that Jesus will say next to Martha go far beyond her and stretch into my life and your life. The significance of the resurrection not only of Lazarus, but of Christ himself, is contained in the words that Jesus is about to say in verses 25 and 26. The miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead is not really the point in and of itself. The point is that the miracle would validate the messenger and his message so that everyone would know who Jesus is. Remember verse four, this will be for the glory of God and the glory of the Son. So what exactly is the significance then, not only of this miracle of raising Lazarus, but ultimately of even the resurrection of Christ himself? 
That brings us to a fourth feature where we're going to camp out together for a few moments here. An astounding declaration. An astounding declaration. Look back at the text in verse 25. Remember, she's just said that he will raise on the, in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, this is one of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. This is the fifth of the seven. And each of those seven I am statements are significant. They give us significant truths about who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. What you have to understand is that the New Testament was written in the Greek language, as many of you know, and those, those words there, I am, in English just don't carry the same force as they do in the Greek language because Jesus is being emphatic. He's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He writes it in such a way that it's, it's clear that he and he alone is the resurrection and the life. It's a, a claim of exclusivity. There is no other way to the resurrection and the life. If you think about it, this is a really odd way to say this. We might expect, expect Jesus to say something like, I have the power to produce resurrection or to give life. But that's not what he says. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. His point is to emphasize that the only way a person can become a participant in the resurrection and the life that Jesus offers is in and through Christ himself. There is no other way. Martha has just introduced the idea of a future resurrection of the people of God. And Jesus says the only way, Martha, for someone to participate in that resurrection is through me. I am the resurrection and the life. This is an astonishing claim. It's going to take us a few minutes here to really step back and look at exactly what Jesus is saying because he actually makes two separate claims here. The first claim is, I am the resurrection, and the second claim is, I am the life. Both of these have eternal significance for us today. These carry over to each one of us in this room. Now, here's what Jesus Means And it's very helpful for us in the text because Jesus goes on in the very next phrase to explain what he means when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So we don't have to guess. He's going to tell us in his own words what he means. He explains first what he means by being the resurrection, and then he explains what he means by being the life. So let's look at this first claim, I am the resurrection. What does Jesus mean when he says that? Look back at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. This is an explanation of that first statement, I am the resurrection. Jesus says, what I mean is that the one who believes in me will live even if he dies. What does it mean to believe in him? Understand that the word believe implies more than just cognitive belief. It's not just cold facts. It's not just checking off a box. Yeah, I believe that. Sure. It's more than that. The word believe means reliance or trust. It's to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. To rely on it, to trust in it personally, not just to know it as a cognitive fact. 
But what exactly does a person need to believe about Jesus when he says, he who believes in me? What exactly does he mean? Believes what about Jesus? Thankfully, John explains that for us in this very gospel. You may not know this, but John actually gives us a purpose statement for why he wrote the gospel of John. It was for a very specific reason. And he gives that to us in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And in that, he answers this question of what is it that we have to believe about Jesus? This is what John says. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that, that is, I wrote what I wrote for this reason, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. It means to believe what Jesus taught about himself, that he is the very son of God. That is that Jesus is the God man, fully God and fully man in one person. It means that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. He was the, the long awaited one, the promised one in the Old Testament the one that would come and, and crush the head of the serpent, the one that would come and lay down his life as the suffering servant to pay for the sins of his people. That's what it means to believe in him. In fact, this is what the angels proclaimed on the day of his birth. When Jesus was born, listen to what the angels say of him. It says, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ, or who is Messiah, the Lord. This is who Jesus was. It's who the angels claimed that he was. It's who Jesus claimed and proved that he was. And it's what Jesus means when he says, he who believes in me. That is, he who believes that I am who I say that I am, the very son of God in human flesh. Now, to believe this requires humble repentance. It insinuates that we, we have to understand that we're in need of such a savior, that we have sinned against a holy God who created us and that truthfully, we have to agree with God that if he gave us what we deserved, if he simply just treated us as we deserve, we would receive God's punishment. The Bible says the penalty for sin is death. And not just physical death, but what the, the Bible calls the second death. That is eternal separation from God in a real place the Bible calls hell. So when Jesus says, he who believes in me, he means a person who recognizes rightfully their position for God as a, before God as a humble sinner who needs God's forgiveness and that Jesus is the answer, that he is the son of God, the Messiah, who has come to take away the sins of all who would believe in him. That's what he means when he says, he who believes in me. But what is the end result for the per person that believes in him? Jesus says, he who believes in me will live even if he dies, even if he dies. Remember, this is Jesus' explanation of what he meant by I am the resurrection. 
Jesus is teaching us the amazing truth that for those who believe in him, when they experience physical death in this life, that is not the end of the story. There is much more to the story because one day, as Martha's already proclaimed, he will raise his people up to new physical life. You see, a lot of people have an unbiblical concept of what heaven will be like. We've been influenced by culture and paintings and all kinds of things. Many people think that, that heaven is just floating around as a disembodied spirit, maybe on a cloud, and there's some angels that look like chubby babies with harps, and that's what we'll do. The scriptures describe heaven as something far grander than we could ever imagine. The Bible teaches that for those who are in Christ, God will bring them back to real physical life with a new body, a glorified body that will never know sin, that will never know sickness, that cannot die, and that we will live on a new earth, a renewed earth where Christ reigns in righteousness. That's what heaven will be like, a perfect relationship with God, a real relationship as a person, body and soul with God and with others. It'll be a real life, face-to-face with our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. I am the resurrection. That is, he who believes in me will be part of that, and I will bring them to new physical life so that they can be with me forever. This is what Jesus taught earlier in John chapter 6, verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he's given me, I lose nothing, listen to this, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is what Jesus taught. That's why he came that that promise of a future physical resurrection could be real. Jesus purchased that. If you're interested, by the way, we don't have time to go into that any further, but if you're interested in reading more of what that new heaven and earth will be like, just go to Revelation chapter 20 and 21 where John describes that for us there. While God does not promise to keep us from experiencing physical death in this life, he does promise that for the believer we have a sure hope that we will one day be physically resurrected to eternal life. That's what Jesus means when he says, I am the resurrection. But there's a second claim that Jesus makes here. He says, I am the life. Back in verse 26, he explains it this way. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Here again, Jesus reiterates that it is through belief in him and him alone that a person gains access or becomes a participant in these promises. But here he brings up this issue of of life, of he who lives in me, not just believes, but he who lives in me. Jesus is explaining that the promise that he has purchased or he's going to purchase in his death and resurrection is not just physical life in the future. It's not just heaven in the future. It's a real change right now in the present tense. That for the person who repents and believes in Jesus, 
God gives them new spiritual life immediately that will never pass away. That's what he means by I am the life. After all, isn't this what he says? We, we read in the, the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How about John 3.36? He who believes in the Son has eternal life, has it right now, has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Or later in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Now, why is this new spiritual life even necessary? Why do we need it? Well, it's because the Bible explains that apart from Jesus Christ, prior to coming to salvation, we are spiritually dead. We have no spiritual life. Ephesians 2 describes it this way, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them, we, all, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Apart from Christ, that, that was us, that was me, that was all of us, dead in sin. You see, the Bible explains that we can't be good enough to bring ourselves to God, that we, we can't do enough good works, that, that we don't have this, this system that we often think exists in our mind where if I just do enough good, it'll erase the bad, and then when I get before God, he'll see that my good outweighs my bad and everything will be fine. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says one sin is enough for us to be guilty forever before God. And there's no way for us to make up for our own sin that's why this is such good news that Jesus says, he who believes in me will never die. Why? Because he will give to that one this eternal life. That's why it is such good news. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's proclaiming that those who place their trust in him are guaranteed to participate in the future resurrection, but will have the immediate result of eternal spiritual life. Now what's interesting is Jesus closes out this statement to Martha with a question. It's a simple question, but it's a powerful question. It's a question that reverber reverberates through history. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus obviously directs this question at Martha, but as readers of this text, God means for us to consider the question as a personal question as well. Do you believe this? 
Do you believe it to be true? And not just cognitively, but will you place your trust and your full reliance in Jesus Christ alone as the true son of God, the Messiah who came to save sinners? Will you put your trust and reliance in him and not in yourself or anyone else? Because there is no other way of salvation except through the person of Jesus Christ. As you contemplate your own answer to that question, let's look at Martha's answer to that question. This is a fifth and final feature of this conversation, a model response, a model response. Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. Notice that Martha's response is very much in keeping with what John said a person must believe in John chapter 20. She not only says yes, but she explains that she has believed. Notice it says not I do believe, but I have believed. This is a perfect tense verb. What it means is I believed it firmly in the past and the effects of that belief are ongoing into the future. I have believed. It's a resolved belief a firm conviction. And she says, I believe three things in particular about you, Jesus. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, and you are the one who comes into the world. That is, you are the promised prophet, the promised one who would come and deliver us, the one that we've been waiting for. Yes, Lord, I believe. She recognizes that Jesus is who he said he was, the very Son of God. But what about you? Do you personally believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the prophesied one who came into the world to save sinners? You might say, well, how can I know if Jesus' claims are true? After all, there are people all throughout human history that have said all kinds of things. Some of them have even started their own religion, and they have thousands or even millions of followers. So how can I know that he really is the things that he says he is? Let me just give you quickly two key proofs that Jesus is, in fact, exactly who he claimed to be. The first one is the immediate one in context, the resurrection of Lazarus. Listen to what happens after this conversation with Martha, picking back up in our text, John 11 and verse 38. So Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb, that is the tomb of Lazarus. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be a stench for it's been, he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Remember, all the way back in verse 4, Jesus said, this will end in bringing glory to the Father and glory to the Son. 
The reason that Jesus made the proclamation to Martha before he ever raised Lazarus from the dead was because the miracle was going to prove his words. He even says that in his prayer. He said, he prays, as Father, I already knew you heard me. I'm praying this for the sake of those listening so that they may believe. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. But there's a second, even more powerful proof, and it is the one that occasions our gathering today. It's the resurrection of Jesus himself. See, early in Jesus' ministry, he, he went into the temple and he cleared out the money changers who were there because they were extorting the people and, and taking them for money. The religious leaders were furious that Jesus did this, and they demanded to know, on what basis do you have the authority to kick these people out of the temple? And listen to Jesus' response and the effect that it had on the, the disciples. John chapter 2, verse 18. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Listen to this. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. The disciples understood that the resurrection sealed the deal. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the proof that they needed, that we needed, that everything Jesus did and said was valid and true, that he really is the Son of God, and that the Father really has accepted his sacrifice for sin. The resurrection holds the entire faith together. In fact, it's because of the resurrection of Jesus that Paul says that believers have hope of their own future resurrection. Remember what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he's abolished all rule and all authority and power. Here is the significance of Easter. We're gathered here today not simply to celebrate the fact of the resurrection, but the effect of of the resurrection. We celebrate because when Jesus was raised from the dead, he proved that he really is the Son of God and that there really is salvation available in and through him and him alone. And so it's important for us to take a moment and in our own hearts to respond to these truths. Let me just point your attention to three appropriate responses to what we've looked at this morning. The first one is obvious. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. The first appropriate response brings us back to this, this question that should be ringing in our ears that Jesus asked to Martha. Do you believe this? Understand if you're here this morning and 
And as we're talking through these things, you, you honestly realize you've never come to a place of truly repenting of sin and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Today can be that day. If you're willing to humble yourself before him, even now in your heart of hearts and call out to God for forgiveness through Jesus Christ, saying, I believe in him, that he really is the son of God, that he really is the savior, the only perfect sacrifice for sin. If you're willing to believe that and turn to him this morning, then you will be saved. And these promises that Jesus has just given to us of a future resurrection and immediate eternal life will be yours. Let me encourage you, don't let your head hit the pillow tonight until you've really settled this in your own heart. Do you believe this? He's a gracious and merciful Savior. He's very willing to save. Turn to him even now and know the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation he offers. But if you're in Christ already this morning, there are ways that we need to respond to this as well. The first is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Serve him. It's interesting, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which, as you know, is a chapter that, that Paul spends the bulk of his time talking about the resurrection. We just read a, a piece of that just a moment ago. This is the implication that he comes away with at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. He says this, Therefore, that is in light of all that I've just said about the resurrection, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. After proclaiming the glories of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul says the Christian response, the conclusion that the Christian should come to is to stand firm and to live life serving Jesus Christ until he calls us home, knowing that our service of him is not in vain, but it will bear much good fruit because he will cause it to do so. Abound in the work of the Lord. Know that your service is not in vain. Double down in your service and your trust and your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. We should have a firm resolve to continue in our trust, to continue in our service, not to grow weary in doing good, but to serve him until he brings us home. That brings us to a third and final implication. If you're a Christian this morning, what we've looked at should cause you to desire to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. Proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. There will come a day when Jesus Christ returns and brings this sinful world to a close and sets up his own kingdom, even creating a new heaven and a new earth, a place where righteousness will dwell. But today is not that day. And the only way that those who are living in this sinful fallen world will know the joys of that world is if they hear the message that we've just talked about this morning. If they hear from the mouths of those who love him the proclamation that in Jesus Christ is eternal life, that he is the resurrection and the life. Our response as we think about these things is not to hide in our homes and, and huddle together and just wait for God to bring us home. Our response is to get out of our doors, to talk to our neighbors and our family and friends and say, friend, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Because we're not promised the end of today, let alone tomorrow. May we open our mouths. It's too good of news not to share. He's too good of a savior not to proclaim. 
Easter's not the only day that we open our mouths about the resurrection. May it be a daily reality for us that our lives are characterized and driven by the good news that we serve a risen Savior and He is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, our hearts are overwhelmed at what you have accomplished for all who would come to you in repentance and faith. Even now, in your grace, you extend salvation, a real offer of salvation. God, we pray you would do your work today, that your Holy Spirit would work within our hearts for those that are in Christ, that these truths would just resonate with us, that they would, would push us to be more serious about our pursuit of you and following you in obedience. And for those that may be with us that have never come to a saving faith, that today by your spirit, you would open their eyes to the truth, draw them to yourself, that they may come to know you in a saving way. Thank you for giving us the gift of being able to celebrate you today, the gift of a risen Savior. We ask all of this in your holy and precious name. Amen.